You may be seated in his presence, but keep that attitude of prayer for a moment at home and here at the BMI. You know, I said a couple weeks ago that one of the greatest thrills I have as a preacher is to remind people that God loves us. So let's uh, just, just meditate. I hardly ever tell people to meditate, but meditate on that for a moment, that you are loved by God. It's a big thing. Meditate at home. Take a moment on your couch as you think about that, those words, that he loves us. He's a good, good father, and he loves us. We are fully known, and he loves us. Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, Grace City. Hey, let's hear it for the worship team. And, and there's a reason for that is not only are they doing such a great job here this morning and last week, um, but I want to pray for Paula Huggins in just a moment. Paula is our worship leader, and we miss her. She is home in um, Ohio taking care of her family and the loss of her, their grandmother. And uh, so we'll see her again next week, God willing. Uh, but in the meantime, this team has taken, taken over and done the job, have they not? So thank you all. In, and their spirit, their spirit in Christ has been awesome. So we thank you for that. Let's pray for Paula and, and pray for our service here this morning once more. Father, we are grateful today that you are in our midst. And we lift up our sister Paula to you as she uh, tends to her family. And we pray that uh, you will work through her in ways that will just uh, shock her with the goodness of your spirit. You are a good, good father, and you love us. And we sense that love, particularly in times of loss and trouble. So make your presence known to Paula in deep, deep ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Make your name known to us in deep, deep ways this morning. We pray it again in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Everybody say amen. Well, church, we have a challenge in front of us this morning. And it has to do with our tendency to think and to do the same things over and over again and then call them brilliant. And you've heard this trouble. I mean, you may have noticed, like I did during the Super Bowl last Sunday, that the three exciting new movie and, and TV ideas that were pro promoted during the Super Bowl were Law and Order, um, Jurassic Park, and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now, this is not exactly a creative renaissance, right? We need to be much more creative this morning with this concept that we've just been singing about. We love to sing about it, but it goes, it, it goes away like a mist. In John 15, in the passage that Corey covered last week, Jesus has already revealed the fundamental secret of Christian living. Bob, you came in just in the right time. The fundamental secret of Christian living. And I kid you not, it's, it's like Einstein's formula, E equals MC squared. This spiritual formula ripples with unbelievable power to order our steps heavenward. And here it is. You and me, and I and you. That's the spiritual formula that completely changes our world. You and me, and I and you. Corey called it remainfulness. He made up a word last week. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Understanding this, church, is the only way today's text can find a foothold in our lives. Because we love to push this away. Jesus is doubling down this morning on love as the method to the madness of following him to the cross. And it is madness in the world's eyes. 
Listen now as I read the six verses of chapter 15 that we routinely acknowledge, we sing about them, and then we shove them to the highest shelf of our spiritual closet until the next time we get to sing about them. Here it is, and you're going to notice as I read this that there are bookends on each side of this passage that are the same thing, bookends, and then there's a middle. It begins this way with the first bookend. My command is this, he says. This is verse 12 of John 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this to lay, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. The final bookend, are you ready? Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. He begins with a command, he ends with a command, and then there's a middle. And I'm going to follow Jesus' pattern here this morning and bookend my message by examining the command to love at the beginning and the end of my message and fill in the middle with his culture, friendship with our Lord and one another. And so the title I'm working from this morning, at home you'll see it on your screen, The Way of Love, Command and Call. The Way of Love, Command and Call. And he begins with the command. Here it is in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And you might ask, and you should ask this morning, how can you command love? Right? This is not something we do to each other. Some people you love and some people you don't. You can tolerate most people. If you're good at it, most of us aren't. But you don't love them all. You can't. And such thinking, when we think about that, that, that's what causes us to push this away because it misses Jesus' point entirely. The Lord commands us to love because heaven's love, agape love, which I'll say a whole lot more about the word agape uh, at the end, at the next bookend, but agape love, listen to this, is a decision to, to act for the benefit of someone else no matter how you feel about them. That's the love Jesus is talking about. Are we clear? Agape is the decision to act for the benefit of someone else, no matter how you feel about them. So it's, it's not simply loving those whom you already have ties with. Anyone can do that. It, but, but with all the people of God, nobody's good at that. The skill set has expanded. The skill set required to love inside the church and outside the church inside your family and outside your family, inside your neighborhood and outside your neighborhood, inside your zip code and outside your zip code, the skill, the love set, the skill set to love has expanded to all those things. In 1958, church, Dr. King explained this as he was defining the beloved community. And he, and he explains it better than I can. So listen for a moment. Agape, he says, does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. Agape love does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. It begins by loving others for their sakes and makes no distinction between a friend and an enemy. It is directed toward both. And then he finishes this way. Agape is love seeking to preserve and create community. The beloved community, which is our series. Let me show you two ways of thinking in this first bookend uh, about love that can get us off heaven's track really quickly. 
Are you ready? Here's two ways. We think love is about passion, and it is in part. But our communal idea of passion is particularly twisted. We think of passion in a communal sense as energy and excitement for a cause in which we can overcome the other. Do you see Peter's passion in this text so far in John 13 through 17? We've been, Peter gets mentioned almost every week because he's interacting with Jesus. His passion, do you see his passion? He is making, a couple weeks ago, he was making all sorts of promises to Jesus. I got your back. I'll stand with you. I'll go with you. I'll die with you. I'll never deny you. And you remember Jesus saying, Peter, calm down. Before this day is through, you're going to deny me three times. But he's, he's, Peter is ready to fight in his passion for Jesus. And in just a few hours, in just a few hours, after they leave the upper room in John chapter 18, which is not part of this series, but let me just give you a, a foretaste of his passion. In just a few hours, he's going to pull his sword, Peter, and use it on one of the high priest servants sent to arrest Jesus. He is passionate to fight for Jesus. But let me tell you a little bit of background about this story in John 18. Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're confronted there by Judas, bringing the high priest's troops with him to arrest Jesus. The troops, uh, Jesus says to them, are you ready? He says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, are you ready? I am he. I am he. And, when, and here's what the story tells us in John 18. As soon as he says, I am he, all the high priest's men and Judas, they fall down. The power of his I am statements, once again, Corey, they fall down. And that's when Peter pulls his sword in his passion to fight for Jesus and says, asks him, shall we smite them with a sword? And before he waits for an answer, he swings for the head of Malchus. They even named the guy. He's the high priest. There's such detail here. I love it. And he misses the head. Thank God. He cuts his right, it says his right ear. I mean, imagine. He's, he's not swinging for the ear, folks. He's swinging for the head. And in Luke 22, it gives us some more detail about this very story because it says Jesus says, put your sword away are you out of your mind? He doesn't say that. But, but he actually does his final miracle there. He heals the ear of his enemy. His enemy. Final, final miracle. Blows my mind. Peter's passion. The kind of passion that Peter exhibits here, you might argue, Jamon, that it comes from his love for Jesus. But it's twisted. And it misses Jesus' point entirely. In this text. Because this kind of passion, church, is a caricature. This kind of passion is easily infatuated. This kind of passion makes lots of promises. This kind of passion acts when it has the upper hand, but withdraws at the first sign of difficulty. It's a caricature. It's an icon. Because just minutes after drawing his sword to fight for Jesus, he denies Jesus. He denies even knowing Jesus three times. That's the kind of passion we, we see a lot of that kind of passion these days, don't we? Attacking from the safety of our couch. We bravely take on our perceived enemies when we have the upper hand and then we withdraw when it gets hard. Here's, here's an opposite way that we get off track with, God's, with, with, with agape love. 
we think love is about patience. And it is, in part. As a matter of fact, Paul's first definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, he says love is patient. But church, our communal idea of patience is twisted. We think of patience as the ability to wait and tolerate the other. That's how we think. Of it. And we think God loves us for being tolerant. This kind of patience, you might argue, comes from our love of Jesus. But we miss patience as it's defined in heaven. Because this kind of patience is also a caricature. This kind of patience waits until it can safely move on. This kind of patience is sure of its own superiority. I can tolerate you. This kind of patience showcases tolerance. But tolerance is the enemy of reconciling love. And if you don't believe me, have coffee with Corey Barnes. He'll tell you why. Listen, both passion and patience have their place in the way of love. But in building the beloved community, the communal expression, we need to get these words straight from heaven. And here it is. Both passion and patience, you think of them almost opposites, right? If this side was patient and this side was passionate, we'd have a real difference. Or vice versa. We think of them the same, but listen, or as opposites, but, but they're both from the same root word. They come from the, the Latin root word, pati, which guess what? It means to suffer. The passion of the Christ is the suffering of the Christ. We know this, right? The patience that defines Christ's love is not the capacity to wait on another. It's the ability to suffer alongside the other. This is patience. The, this love command of Jesus is, first of all, a foretaste of the suffering on his behalf that we are called to. And in that light, in that light of love as suffering, he issues a call to you and me. And that's our second point today, the calling in verses 13 to 15. You'll see it on your screen at home. There are three dimensions in these verses to his call. His call to us, they're in play here, and the first serves as a clear bridge to the suffering love that I just described. Here it is in verse 13. Are you ready? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, he's about to do this very thing literally, right? To lay down his life for the whole of creation. He's about to go to the cross. In church, no one can do more than die, and you can only do that once, and then it's over, Right? So we tend to kind of shove this one to our spiritual closet too, but sh surely, surely in your Bible study, he means more than getting yourself killed on behalf of others. So becoming fluent in the non-literal ways of laying down our lives, where surrendering our own interests in service of others, where it lifts the beloved community to the place where Jesus imagines it going, where we pick up our cross in a thousand ways to pr prioritize the beloved community as Jesus does, We've got to get fluent in these non-literal ways of laying down our lives. And I want to, I want to warn you, because we, we get off track with this. So human beings are not naturally good at this. It has to do with our sinful nature. We are not naturally good at, at the non-literal ways of laying our lives down. For many, it's easier to jump on a hand grenade to save the brothers and sisters than it is to, to lay my life down in the lawn literal ways on a daily basis. Because I can see that, I can understand that, but, but this, this non-literal thing, here it is. And, and the good promise here that we even sang about, we're not good at it naturally. Can you own that? Is that okay? As Corey would say, are we still friends? We, we just are horrible at this. 
but we can accomplish it in the spirit. Somebody say amen. Grace City. Grace City to me as a church. Grace City Church is both an example and a forum for the possible in this non-literal dimension of laying down our lives. It's an example. I mean, literally, for, for Corey Barnes and Bob Bingham to co-pastor this church for the last 13 years, that is a laying down the life event that Corey has, Corey has on a nearly daily basis and, and is willing to going forward for the rest of our lives laid his life down for me in so many ways. He's still alive, by the way. It's non-literal. But that, that partnership shows the form. Having a group of elders, men and women, black, Asian, white, uh, doing the long run, long-suffering service of eldership, Jermon, Kristen, thank you, all of you. It's, it's a forum for the possible when it comes to laying down our lives. And I tell you what, Grace City is a place where we can learn, Kathy, to be comfortable in uncomfortable settings. Let me say that again. Grace City is a place where we can learn to be comfortable in uncomfortable settings. We see it in the flavor groups. We see it in the movie nights. We see it in all the things that are yet to come. We see it in all the things yet to come. But, but being comfortable in, in uncomfortable settings is not a bad definition of what church ought to look like to me. Dr. King asked in 1967, where do we go from here? It's toward the end of his life. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community, he says. If you choose Grace City as your church, just for example, you are being intentional in lifting up the value and worth and human dignity of all people. And you will lay your life, if, if, if this is your church and you get deeply involved, you will lay your life down dozens of times in the years ahead on behalf of the beloved community. You will, you'll have to. You'll have to, just to be part of this because of what God's doing here. No greater love. And I just want to put my arms around all of you right now. We can't do it in a pandemic, but thank you for being a part of this no greater love. Secondly, verses 14 to 15, I can spend all my time right there. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives us a new title. It's a job title of sorts, but it's a really cool one. He says this in 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Love, sacrificially. Lay your lives down for this kind of love, agape love. A servant, he says, does not know his master's business, so I can't, I can't call you a servant anymore because everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. You know my business. You know my father's business. You're in the business. Church, we don't obey God anymore because it's in our best interest to do so. That's what servants do. We obey because we have intimate access to the secrets of God. That's different. We obey because we have intimate. In Matthew 13, he says, he says he's told them things. He says to his disciples, I've told you things that have been hidden since creation. Here's the fundamental secret. You and me and I and you, these kinds of secrets, you are insiders on this. It's big. What kind of friend does this look like in real life? Kelly, you know, right? They're the ones you call to celebrate with. They're the ones that call you when you're in trouble. They're the ones that hold a key to your house. They serve themselves in your kitchen. They're the guardians of your children. They know your secrets, and they still come around. Look around the room right now. Just look around. Don't look at me. Look around the room. Look. Yeah, you can't do it at home. You're good. <laughs> look around the room and, and say this kind of thing with Jesus. Just say, whisper, I can't call you friends anymore. I mean, I, I can't, I'm sorry. I can't call you anything but friends anymore. 
I can't call you anything but friends anymore. That'll be the only thing people remember from today's message. It's gone. Might as well quit. <laughs> Start over. I can't call you anything but friends anymore. Because we know too much, and we know it together. We are insiders in the kingdom of heaven's business. In the heaven's economy, as I love to say. We're insiders. Thirdly, before we get too full of ourselves, Jesus tells us how this friendship came to be. Look at verse 15, um, verse 16 in chapter 15. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, which literally means I strategically placed you. How about that? I strategically placed you, Aaron, where you are. That you should go and bear fruit, fruit that should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Break this down for a minute. Jesus is saying to us, wherever you are, remember, I put you there. I had a friend text me this week with a meme, a longtime friend, he's my age, and he texted me a meme, and it said, when God issues you a calling, he's already accounted for your stupidity. And, and he wrote in the text below the meme, he said, this is the most comforting thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I, yeah, do you get it? Do you just get it? Thank you, Scott, for that one. I, I strategically placed you right in the midst of those di difficult people that you have to work with, Jesus says. I placed you in that family you have to visit. I've, I've placed you beside that hellish neighbor. I've placed you in the city you have to live in. I've placed you amidst the difficulty and the pressure. And amidst all that difficulty, you will bear fruit as my friend. And then, and then he says, wait for it. Are you ready? Then you can ask the Father for the needs of these people that you've come alongside. And God will begin to move in their lives as well. I chose you for this assignment to lay your lives down for those people. Now you can pray for those people, and God will come around them too. This is what we're to ask on behalf of the community. And then in the wake of this cosmic call to divine friendship, Jesus reignites the command to love with the bookend, the way he began. He says it this way in 17. We read it. This is my command, love each other. It's the bookend. It's important. He repeats it. It's always important. Look at this once more, Grace City, through a different lens with me in command part two. Command part two is my final point. Church, I did this project years and years ago called Jam and Java. Anyone ever been to Jam and Java in Northern Virginia? Go there. It's in Vienna, Virginia. It still exists. Um, but that's where I learned coffee culture. Jam and Java was a 200-seat music and coffee venue, and it's, it's awesome. Now, the reason I bring that up is, you know that today's coffee culture has an incredibly sophisticated vocabulary, right? Like, it's really hard to order <laughs> if you're not sure of yourself. Do you want a cappuccino, an espresso, a skinny latte, or maybe a venti triple half-sweet non-fat caramel macchiato? What is it that you want? And coffee lovers like me even dream of the perfect cup. And I've worked with several of you. Jeremy, thank you if you're watching. Jer you know, who's, who's got me into that morning perfect Cup of coffee with my Bona Vita. If you don't know what I mean, come ask me. But, but listen, this, the ancient Greeks were even more sophisticated in the way they talked about love than the way we talk about coffee. Can you imagine? I'm going to portray a menu of love right here for you, like you're walking into a coffee shop and it's on the, the blackboard up top. They wrote of four different varieties in the Bible, but there are eight all told in the Greek language. 
And until Jesus, the perfect cup of love, agape, was rarely written about because it's unattainable. Until Jesus. Now, they would have been shocked by our simplicity, John, in using a single word to express different expressions of love, like, I love coffee, I love my country, I love my teammates, or whisper, I love you over a candlelit dinner, and then say the same word, I love Jesus. Like, how do you, how do you even understand anything? So, Grace City, to grasp this teaching of Jesus today, we should be at least as fluent with the vocabulary of love as millennials are with the vocabulary of coffee and text acronyms and emojis and on and on. Let me remind you for a moment of some biochemistry that we share as humans that might help us comprehend the range, the menu of love we find in ancient Greek. There are two primary neurotransmitters out of seven major ones in the human body, but two that regulate this, this issue of the dimension of feelings. These are the neurotransmitters that make us feel our most important feelings, and here they are. The first one is adrenaline. You know this, it responds to fear and frustration and anger and arousal. You get energized, your blood flows, your lungs clear, your heart beats faster. It's exhilarating and it's nerve-wracking. It's Peter with his sword. It's Peter with his denials. It's adrenaline-based. All right? Then there's oxytocin, one we've discovered more recently. This regulates social interaction and sexual reproduction. It plays a role in behaviors that are linked to trust and to loyalty and connectedness, and forgiveness, and sacrifice, and reconciliation, by the way. So the release of adrenaline is easy to trigger, and it has great value. If you're in a burning building, it will help you get out of the building. But it's even more artful, church, to know when and how to cool things off when they're heating up. How to connect through, and on the other side of the anger, and oxytocin will help you accomplish that. It takes agility and practice to trigger and release oxytocin. Now, on that, okay, enough of neurotransmitters, and that's, frankly, everything I know about them. On this night, when Jesus commands love, he is commanding the love that matters most. Now, now stay with me here. Not just any love, but love that, the love that matters most. All love matters but on this night, Jesus wants to be absolutely clear that these, this is the only love worth his final words on his final night. Be clear. And Grace City, four of the Greek loves are not found in the Bible, but they appear regularly throughout classical Greek, and you should know them. So I'm going to tell you briefly about them. Philotia is self-love. That's being comfortable in your own skin. It's oxytocin-based. It's a good thing, but too much of it can make you a narcissist, so be careful. Pragma is long-standing love, like that which develops between long-married couples. You might think of it as oxytocin that is aged like a fine wine. Uh, brand loyalists have pragma for the brands they love. Brand loyalists have pragma for the teams they grew up cheering for. Mania is obsessive love. It is mostly adrenaline. It is codependent to a fault. And it's used by writers in ancient Greek mostly in a toxic context. And, and then there's my favorite non-biblical love, ludus. It's playful love. It's that powerful blend of adrenaline and oxytocin that we see in two siblings when they're rolling and fighting. When we see it in street banter. We see it in dancing. It's hide-and-seek where the object of the game is to be found. It's a mom pitching a ball to her daughter not to strike her out, but so she can hit it. It's, it's a political party debating without debasing. It's an individual who can be self-deprecating without being self-destructive. Are you with me? That's ludus 
it's, it's, it's ludicrous, it's ridiculous, and it's restorative. It belongs in our homes, it belongs in our workplaces, it belongs in our churches. And I, and I want to tell you as a psychologist for a minute, as we get older, if we don't practice playful love, we tend to lose the ability to do it. How many of you know ornery senior citizens? They haven't practiced ludus, so they've gotten really good at being ornery. They're even ornerier, <laughs> ornerier at 80 than they were at 40 because they haven't practiced how not to be. Ludus. I love it. I think it was probably present in the Bible with Jesus at the campfire with the disciples and all the followers. We don't have those stories. One day we will. A lot of campfires. Now, there are four more Greek loves found in the Bible. Greek translations of the Old Testament translate love in the Song of Solomon with the word eros. That's erotic love, living entirely in the dimension of adrenaline. Eros is advertising a commercial with scantily dressed men and women who are selling auto parts. We use it to make something happened. Two other loves are, are found in the original Greek of the New Testament. Storge refers to family love. It's a focused use of oxytocin in the family. Phileos, we, we know from Philadelphia, it's brotherly, sisterly love. It's a band of brothers. It's soul sisters. It's your small group that you hang with. It's that oxytocin-based feeling of connectedness, and it's lovely. But church, the least common word for love in classical Greek literature, because it's so elusive, because it's so unattainable, Jesus now makes this word the, the, by far, by far the most common word for all expressions of love in the New Testament. It carries all the other loves. It spans all the other loves. It's the very summation of Jesus' final message for you and me. It's the perfect cup of love, agape. Agape is sacrificial love. It's quite frankly limitless. Somebody say limitless. In the end, agape is, is an oxytocin bond so deep and, and an adrenaline bond so energized that you will take a bullet for your partner, your friend, your neighbor, and even your enemy because you wrap them in limitless, sacrificial agape love. Grace City, if we are to energize the beloved community, the reconciling community, then we must be eloquent with Jesus' final command, the bookends. Love each other, he says. He didn't say, phileo, just get along. He didn't say, ludus, just have fun. He didn't say, country first, that would be pragma. He didn't even say, family first, that would be storge. All of them matter, but none of them matter most. He said, agape one another. This is the only love worth my final words on my final night. It's the only one worth it. Grace City, the way of agape will lose you your life because it's not about you anymore when you learn agape. When we are commanded to agape, we are commanded to restore community, to do justice, to meet the needs of our sisters and our brothers. Sometimes it shouts, sometimes it whispers, but it's agape that never fails. When Paul writes, love never fails, he's saying agape is the love that never fails. So Jesus says, I, this is my command, agape each other. Well, as the worship team comes up, with this command, stay with me for a minute, because with this command of love, Jesus is reminding us of the gravitas of agape. But church, it's not a duty to perform, because taken that way as a duty, it becomes arduous and without joy. And Corey showed us the folly of joylessness last week. Jesus said, this is how you make my joy complete. So here's how that works. Listen, if you've, if you've ever 
considered, have you, have you ever considered how difficult it was for Jesus to love the disciples? Over a three-year period of time, Scott's going, yeah, I don't know how he does that. I mean, they were just like you and me. Imagine that. They were stubborn and quarrelsome and jealous and mean-spirited. They were selfish and presumptuous. They triangled each other. They tried to get Jesus to do something for them but, and leave the others out. They ignored him. They sought to overrule him over and over again. Three times Jesus was known to sigh, how long must I be with you? So how did he love them, Jamal? How did he do it? Here it is in verse, you say, hey, just ask Jesus, it's Jesus thing. You just, no, listen. In verse 9 last week, Corey covered this. He says it this way, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's the key. Love flows fully out of a heart that is conscious of being fully loved. And I'll repeat it. One of my favorite things about preaching is to remind you that God loves you. We just sang about it. Do you know this? That's why I had us meditate on it. Because when you know that, it is, it just, it's just so worth it. To, it's just so much easier to love others who aren't like you, don't look like you, don't act like you, who are mean-spirited, whatever, your enemies, your friends, your neighbors, your family. If you're conscious of how loved you are, imagine the power that is unleashed in you as you leave this room today. Great City, when you struggle with loving the unlovely, with loving the beloved community of Christ, consider Christ's love for you. And not just on the cross, but his present dealings with you. Have you been loved this week? Raise your hand. I know you have. You and me and I and you, this is the formula for power in your life. This is how he cares for you and embraces you as a friend and names you as a child of God. I mean, ask yourself not how you became a Christian, but why are you still a Christian? Because he loves you. He's still doing it, isn't he, Jermon? He's still doing it. He's still caring for me. People are hard to love at times. Somebody say amen. But here's a way of thinking. As you leave here today, do less in the arena of trying to love others. Do less in the arena of trying. might sound counterintuitive. Do less in the arena of trying and act more to embrace the sacred secret that God loves you. The fundamental secret. You and me, and I and you. Embrace that, and let's see what happens. And then, as you embrace that, like it's your last night on earth, go and love like Jesus. Amen? Let's stand up and sing about that.